Hello, I'm Greg, and April Fool's Day. Instead of an inappropriate conversation, I want to share some stand-up comedy with you in the form of something I call, Did You Hear the One About V8 Nate? This will carry an explicit tag, and I fully intend to earn it. That's the warning you're going to get. But then you might expect that if you were actually going to what we might call modern stand-up comedy. And the way I want to address this today is to, to tell this what is more or less a true story. So first off, I'm not the character in the story as I tell it. I try to describe the events from the perspective of you know, somebody I'm not, from the roommate of this central character that I'm going to name Nate. So... Uh, obviously, there's a little bit of uh, you know artistic license that I've taken here, so don't uh, don't make an assumption that I've personally experienced everything I'm describing. But I was there; I was one of the people in the crowd. I was at the scene of the crime, so to speak. And the way I like to tell this story is as if you had a normal stand-up routine you were doing, and at some point along the way, somebody, either a heckler or people walking out gave you the segue to talk about what it means as an audience member to be offended and how, you know, you got to be careful about what it means to be too easily offended because there are degrees of offensiveness. And so this is almost a Lenny Bruce style segue into personal storytelling that is meant to sort of incite perhaps even outrage. And with that in mind, that's the direction I'm going to take us in. And I'm also going to stand up. I don't think I've ever done this. Maybe once or once or twice I've gotten up and walked across the room, but I'm actually going to stand up, clear a spot for myself, and try to do this as if I actually were standing with a microphone and speaking to a large group. So here we go. Offended. Who have I offended? I don't understand that. The cop? The reporter? You know, ladies and gentlemen, somehow I've offended this, uh, this group of people over here on, the, on this side of the auditorium with my little story today. You know, that's a shame. If he is a police officer or a, or a reporter, a police reporter, he didn't come here, you know, ready to laugh at himself. And that's sad. In any event, let me assure you that I didn't intend any offense, but at least not at this point. But if Officer Winchell is going to walk out angry, offended with his feelings hurt, with a negative opinion of me as a, as a performer, I feel obligated to give him a true story with which to take offense. I don't see any other option. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, and ladies in particular, let me apologize for this foray into the life and times of V8 Nate. Nicknames were pretty common in my college dormitory, uh, at least on the floor that I lived on. Sometimes an entire night could go by without anyone being called by their proper name. It was sledge here, mow over there, fire crotch on the other side of the room. You know, and most of these names weren't arbitrary either. There was nothing ambiguous about him, and that definitely includes V8 Nate. His real name was Nathan. And it'd probably be better for all of us if I didn't reveal his last name, for reasons that'll probably be obvious. Nathan had the world's most incredible collection of <clears throat> men's magazines. He was a subscriber to more of these rags than I even knew existed. I'm not talking about Playboy and Penthouse. He got them, but he regarded them as mere wallpaper more than a real magazine. Now, every month, my mail would bring me a letter from home, an unwanted credit card offer, 
and a monthly record club deal. His mail brought him Swank, Knave, Hustler, Wee, Crotch Shots, you name it, Nate got it. As I mentioned, he viewed your run-of-the-mill adult magazine as wallpaper fodder. Before I moved across the hall, he had transformed the largest corner, the one without a closet or a door, into what I called the Wall of Shame. Every other row was a year of Playboy centerfolds, followed by the corresponding year of Penthouse. For his closet and the ceiling above his bed, he reserved what he called the true porn. Now, I don't want to come off as a prude here. At 18 years old, first year away from home and all that, I initially didn't mind the extra reading materials that Nate provided. Still, I wasn't naive enough to presume that my homework would fit in with his lifestyle. One day, while reading the cartoons, I swear, man, I was just reading the cartoons, I saw something so offensive that I simply, you know, had to share it with the entire group. The cartoon pictured a woman lying on the bed, minstrelly bleeding on the sheets. On the floor, a used tampon was staining the carpet, and a man at her feet was wiping blood off of his face. The caption read, Gosh, I could have had a V8. The vegetable juice people, who no doubt would be offended, have no cause for complaint. Anyone old enough to remember their annoying series of commercials will understand where this scatological pun came from. I mean, years of watching a commercial protagonist look up from a cup of coffee and exclaim, Gosh, I could have had a V8. Well, that inspired sarcasm from sources much more credible than penthouse cartoonists. Nevertheless, one person in the dorm room was not offended by this cartoon. Yeah, you guessed it. Very sharp, if you haven't figured it out already. It was Nathan. What, you boys ain't earned your red wings yet? Nathan asked, and he proceeded to tell us a story. Nate grew up in Sealing, Oklahoma. Population? Well, I've got a bigger crowd here, thank God. His sister, who was three years older, went to Southwestern State University in Weatherford. At about an hour away, visiting her was more than a mere road trip, but she was close enough for a weekend visit. Many a weekend during Nate's sexually active senior year, he spent there, cruising the strip, picking up girls, and consuming ridiculous amounts of alcohol. One morning, Nate woke up in his sister's extra bedroom, shocked to find blood on his sister's satin sheets. His initial panic over how much it would cost to replace her linens was erased by the sight of blood all over his face in the bathroom mirror. Now, Nate was a little drunk, still a little drunk, and rebounding off of a night that he could not remember. He checked his mouth, looking to see if he'd lost a tooth or something, and finally he concluded that he was looking at a bigger mess than any tooth could cause. Then, upon careful consideration, he realized that the bloodstains on his face were in an unusual symmetry. Then he remembered. Not the girl. She was long gone, and he wasn't inclined to recall her name. But he did remember her idea, and it was her idea. I believe Nate when he said this. It's not that Nate was an honest guy, because he wasn't. Rather, you could count on Nathan to take credit for any sexual notions. So his willingness to credit her was unusual enough to be genuine. Nate, like most everyone else on the planet, was initially sickened by his sad state of affairs, yet, in a twist we soon learned was ever so typical of his twisted brain, he made peace with his actions. His rationale. One, he lived to tell the story. Two, 
The girl didn't think any less of him than she already did. And three, he got some action out of it. Now for Nate, that one, two, three punch was more important than any sense of decorum could possibly be. The only person who suffered any for Nate's precarious discovery was his sister. You see, Nate's efforts at stain removal proved fruitless. On the other hand, I don't think anyone needs to start feeling sorry for Nate's older sibling. For one thing, she knew what he was up to when he made those southern swings into town. And in fact, she provided him the extra bedroom with the satin sheets for just such an eventuality. More to the point, though, Nate's elder was indirectly responsible for creating this sexual Frankenstein in the first place. Three years earlier, back home at Sealing, Nate returned home from a summer soccer practice to find one of his sister's senior class friends watching soap operas in the living room of their family's modest three-bedroom home. The friend of the family told young Nate that his sis would be back any minute and that sis had invited her to stick around so she could keep them up to date with what was going on in their daytime dramas. Nate thought nothing of it, and he proceeded to the shower. To hear Nathan tell the story, his sister's friend was, of course, the most sexually attractive girl ever to live in western Oklahoma. He wouldn't, or couldn't, describe for us the particulars of this so-called unbelievable body, a fact that was very much in conflict with a typical morning after from V8 Nate. With this one exception, he was never too shy on details. To make a long story short, though, Nate's sister was, truth be told, in not-so-nearby Clinton, trying to test out of a freshman-level biology class. Meanwhile, her friend was revealing this fact, and quite a few others, to the 15-year-old brother during the course of a long, wet shower. A very different boy toweled off that afternoon. The kind of boy who would shrink at the thought of menstrual cunnilingus was washed down the drain forever. Now, those of us who weren't shocked by his shower story weeks earlier were needless to say shocked by the climate of his Weatherford tale. We had long ago given up the notion that he was pulling our legs. During the first two weeks of school, Nate had claimed that he had bed six fellow freshmen and a sophomore, and one of them repeatedly. Of course, we challenged the particulars of his testimony, but circumstantially the times and places of his deposition seemed to match perfectly. So in hopes of shutting him up once and for all, we bugged him. Being the good roommate that I am, I borrowed a voice-activated tape recorder, set it, and left it below his bed when we were at the bars that night. Much to our dismay, though, the next morning, the tape confirmed every nuance of Nate's play-by-play. -play. Worse yet, for us would-be debunkers, the girl who came to visit was Gina, the girl he had seen repeatedly. Not only did we lose our opportunity to expose a liar who was leading us on with his just-read-it-in-forum stories... We lost our opportunity to deny that he must be doing something right. Gina seemed a pretty clear indication that V8 Nate was doing something quite well indeed. Most of us wrote off Nate's success as a credit to his debasement. After all, he was willing to do anything. We were consistently reminded of how far he would go as he would occasionally turn a co-ed's not-a-good-time-for-me line into a violent, aggressive come-on. He once replied, I'd be more than happy to kiss it and make it feel better for you. Yes, she slapped him, but V8 Nate didn't always get that reaction. I, on the other hand, sensed that one day, one day, Nate would get slammed. I didn't have to wait that long. Two weekends after our regrettable tape recording scam, Debbie came to town. 
Now, it's hard to imagine a guy like Nate with a girlfriend. Arguably, in a swinging couples kind of way, Gina might have qualified as one. But Debbie was a hometown girlfriend. For Debbie, maintaining a relationship with Nate did give her a college man connection. Edmund was far enough removed from ceiling to give Nate plenty of room for debauchery. But it was close enough for Debbie to do Edmund in much the same way that Nate had done Weatherford years before. We were left largely to guess about Debbie's appeal to Nate. She was more or less as desirable as the mixed bag of beauty that Nate had been picking from college. Her family wasn't rich. There were no prospects for marriage. And as far as we knew, she didn't have any blackmail evidence to use against him. The process of elimination left us with two probable choices. Either one, she knew some serious tricks in bed, or two, he really loved her. Debbie's pending visit posed a problem for Nate, namely, in with Debbie and out with Gina. Take it as a given that Gina didn't take the news lying down, even though that's how she received the news, and I've got a tape at home to prove it. Of course, Nate didn't take Debbie's pending arrival for granted either. While he left the wall of shame untouched, he did remove the action posters from the ceiling, leaving only one offensive poster hanging inside his closet door. He spent the remaining two days shaking Gina off. Although sleeping with her for several times during the first two months of school certainly distinguished her from V8 Nate's other prey, he coldly assured her that the two months with her couldn't compare to the two years with Debbie. I was the first person on the floor who saw Debbie. Tim, the neighbor across the hall with whom I'd hoped to swap rooms, was waiting with me in our room for Nate's slow and steady walk down the hall. Now, while bringing a girl into a dorm is generally a source of notoriety, Bringing a hometown high school girl was a much more risky venture. Too risky for sudden, impulsive movements. So Nate approached us as if he was navigating through a minefield. As I have hinted, Tim and I were not particularly impressed. She seemed nice. She was generally attractive. Nevertheless, we were convinced that she must have known some serious tricks in bed. Debbie, he said, this is Dave. She reached out her hand, which I shook. Dave, I'd like for you to meet Debbie. Pleased to meet you, I told her. With the exception of Nate the Great here, I've never met anybody from Ceiling before. She said hello. We decided to skip dinner and go as a group to the bars, and I left to round up the gang. Now, at this point, I'm going to use some poetic license. I, you'll have to grant me two things. First, trust that the story I'm telling you is true. Nothing could, after all, possibly be as offensive as the truth. Second... This moment where I'm departing from the events I personally eyewitnessed was confirmed by both Nate and Debbie. So, while I didn't hear their conversation firsthand, there were no tape recorders under the bed this time, we can take the context of what the conversation was for granted. Debbie decided that she preferred Nate dressed up in a purple polo shirt. Like me, he was part of those trendy high school purple polo clubs. Yeah, undeniably a bunch of yuppie bullshit. Thanks for uh, making that observation, if you did. Anything embarrassing from your high school years you'd like to bring up now? To the subject at hand, Nate looked at her, looked at his closet door, and then looked back at Debbie. He was hoping to find a way to change her mind. More to the point, he was hoping to find a way of shielding her view from the Dirty Dykes magazine centerfold that he'd hung on the inside of his closet. I've got to tell you, not only did that poster take away whatever glamour lesbianism might have had, it was enough to make me want to reconsider more than one sexual question. Generally speaking, you ask me to look at a picture of two women performing 69, and I'm likely to say, okie dokie, 
without too much thought. These women, however, were two of the least attractive nudes I've ever seen. I'm not calling them ugly, but they, were, they weren't pretty. And I suppose the photographer was looking for sort of a, a sandy on the beach kind of a look, but they didn't look so much covered with sand as with silt. You know, it was nothing but this huge picture of two nasty-looking lesbians licking each other. The Dirty Dyke Centerfold had taken its publication name a tad too seriously. Debbie opened up Nate's closet door, and Nate sprouted wings and flew across the room. He landed directly between her and the backside of the door and spread his arms in this huge pseudo-yawn. There was a chance that this bright-eyed small-town girl might have opened the closet, removed the shirt, and closed it without noticing anything in her peripheral vision. But not with Nate's sudden display of panic. What's that picture behind you? She asked. What? There's some, something on the inside of your closet door. On the inside of my closet door, he asked, innocently enough. Oh my God! She exclaimed. But Nate exclaimed too. Mary, mother of Jesus, that Dave. He's actually gone too far this time. Your roommate did this? Don't be upset, Nate replied. It's just a practical joke. Boys will be boys. You know, he's you know pulling a fast one on me in hopes of disrupting our night together. He's just getting a little tired of sleeping on Tim's floor. Why has he been sleeping on Tim's floor? Debbie asked, naively failing to notice that <laughs> Nate had made an unfortunate revelation. Oh, he hasn't. He, he hasn't. Uh, but we've been teasing him a lot about the fact that he's going to be on the floor. Damn nice of him, really, Nate said with a smile. And Debbie returned his devilish grin. Considering what a sport Dave's being, I think we can forgive his tasteless prank, don't you? And Debbie agreed. Now, the two most important lessons to be learned here are, one, although she wasn't a horse's ass, Debbie could be led to water and persuaded to drink. And two, nobody could surpass Nate for quick-thinking, results-oriented bullshit. We weren't two steps inside the club before Tim identified Gina. He didn't need to be told what to do. Immediately, he kicked his damage control efforts into high gear. And while the gang and I accompanied the happy couple to our upstairs table, Tim and his roommate formed a wedge between Gina and the group. Now, Giorgio's was one of those pathetic early 80s dance clubs. The beer was cheap. The crowd was happening. The music was never, ever any good. How we sustained ourselves in all those months with no rock and roll on a Friday night was hard to fathom. Worse yet, the place didn't even have that new wave thing going for it. I mean, a little tainted love and maybe some Der Commissar would have been a welcome change to the nightly dose of Whippet Baby by the Daz Band and, of course, many a thrilling tune by Michael Jackson. Further adding to the irony, none of us danced. You know, I mean, some did. Some even parlayed a couple of dances into some serious action. But truth be known, we sat on the upper floor to avoid the dancers who were below us. Soon enough, Tim reported back. Much like a couple of sorority girls, Tim whispered into Nate's ear, and the two of them decided they had to use the toilet together. This forgettable moment in an otherwise unforgettable night was a masterful example of sex role reversal, if I chose to pursue that, but I won't. The content of these urgent talks? Gina was claiming to be pregnant. Tim was convinced that it was too soon for her to know, and expressing an embarrassing amount of experience with home pregnancy testing, Tim assured Nate that Gina must be lying. Nate didn't care either way. 
He wasn't interested. Armed with more than enough advanced information, Nate returned to the table. Our second round of pitchers and first round of popcorn had just arrived when Gina finally broke through the security net that room 237 had been weaving around our table. Nate, I need to tell you something, Gina said, catching all of us off guard. We really didn't expect to see her. With the volume of the music blaring over the disco system, Nate tried to ignore her. Nate, she yelled, Nate! Now she's grabbing his shirt sleeve. All eyes by now, including Debbie's eyes, were on her, and Nate was trapped. Nate, she said, with tears welling up in her eyes, I'm pregnant! Despite the booming beat of the barcades, despite the cacophony of conflicting conversation from nearby tables, despite the atmosphere thick with perfume and smoke, Gina had seemingly silenced the world. With our table literally frozen on the cold concept that she had dropped on him, all eyes were on V8 Nate. Well, congratulations! That's just great! Mike told me you guys had been trying, and yeah, I can't be more happy for you! Nate exclaimed. If I had some cigars, I'd be passing them around right now. You simply have to tell Mike to come by sometime. We will split a pitcher in his honor. Gina was speechless. You haven't met my girlfriend, Nate said, with emphasis on girlfriend. Gina, fighting off tears, stood in disbelief. Gina, this is Debbie. Debbie, Gina. You two may not have met. Gina married Mike this summer, he told Debbie. You remember Mike, the goalie from our you know, summer league soccer team a couple of years ago? They were high school sweethearts just like us, laying it on thicker and heavier. Debbie was placated. Gina simply disappeared, no doubt, in tears. Quite logically, we presumed that she had slithered into the cracks of the sidewalk and dribbled home through the drainage system. Nate was so satisfied with his performance, he was mentally dusting off the shelf for the inevitable Oscar. Of course, we couldn't have been more wrong. Maybe it's just my luck, like a karma that follows me from dance hall to dance hall. But I've never spent more than a couple of hours in those bars without the DJ making at least a minor brain fart. I mean, either the DJ will repeat the same song unintentionally in the series, or announce one track while playing another, or, and this is my favorite, the one thing that car the cardinal sin that Disco Bob just can't forgive, the grand pause. Now, those of you unlearned in the nuances of classical music may not be familiar with the term grand pause, but in, in the blues we call it stop time, in urban jazz it's a breakdown, or it was until rap got a hold of it. In dance clubs it's something like this, the stupid G DJ forgets to start the next track on time and leaves this group of sweaty dancers staring at each other foolishly on the dance floor. Not exactly a scientific term, but you know, you know what I mean when I say grand pause. The other irony that I've noticed is that when these moonlighting DJs foul up, how often the sudden stop in the music brings a sudden stop to all other conversation as well. It's as though the real living people, carrying on vital active conversation, were truly nothing more than a laugh track or a background noise for the pop singers. Only once have I ever seen this, this connection fail to happen. The connection between the song stopping and the conversation stopping. The sole exception was Gina. She was so upset upon returning to our table to reprise her conversation with Nate that she probably didn't hear the music playing. She certainly didn't hear the music end. And in a deathly moment of unexpected silence, Gina returned to our table and yelled, Nate, you licked my pussy and I liked it. You shouldn't laugh at the misfortune of others, don't you know?
Of course, that's what everyone in the bar was doing, at least everyone upstairs and most of the people down the back hall. Somehow, Gina had picked that one magic moment to scream her fool head off. Now, my testimony here is based solely on what I heard. I didn't see a lot after Gina blurted her true feelings to the world. Laughing so hard I couldn't see straight, I tipped over my chair, crashed against the table behind us, and I ended up flat on the floor, kind of underneath Debbie. The last thing I saw was V8 Nate crawling out of the bar on his hands and knees. And Debbie? I can't speak for the rest of the weekend, but a month later she was back in town, hitting the bars with Nate and the gang. In fact, things were so firmly back to normal that Tim spent the weekend sleeping on the floor of my newly acquired dorm room as a personal courtesy to his new roommate, V8 Nate. Now, I told you that story so I could tell you this one, and I'm telling you this one for the sake of, you know, offended people, uh, Officer What's-His-Name, who seems to have left the building. Once the new freshmen got more accustomed to one another, our activities began to uh, exceed mere partying and studying. A couple of us started attending a group called Campus Christians, formed by a sophomore from our sister dorm. Now, sister dorm only meant that we shared a cafeteria. For the most part, sisterly feelings were far outnumbered by more amorous feelings, but not when it came to Mary. Mary was a very special girl. She was a good student, well-liked by all who knew her, and she had enormous patience. I'd never even once seen her angry. Even when upset or troubled by events that she encountered, she almost always approached them with a calm, problem-solving attitude. You hear the expression from time to time about the woman you wouldn't want to bring home to your mom? Well, Mary was exactly the opposite. She was plain, very simple, not homely. Mom would have loved her. Now, even within our group, the nickname Virgin Mary began to circulate about her because she never dated at all, and she seemed to be I don't know, the personification of purity? Nevertheless, I had a sense that beneath that surface, Mary had the potential to be stunningly attractive. And I was not alone in thinking this. Needless to say, though, we were all considerably shocked when V8 Nate started coming down the hall one weeknight with Virgin Mary under his arm. Nate's humiliating experience at the hands of Gina months earlier had not changed him nor had the so-called maturation process that college allegedly brings on. In fact, he still updated the wall of shame, and his inner closet was continually adorned with the dirty dykes or something worse. All of us immediately sensed a disastrous clash of cultures. If she had come to save his soul, I thought she is going to be lucky to save her own dignity. We didn't do what loyal floor mates typically do for an incoming female companion, namely set up a quasi-abusive receiving line. No. Most of us headed for the hills, expecting lightning to strike us all dead sooner rather than later. Tim and I, on the other hand, loaded the voice-activated tape recorder, shoved it under Nate's bed, and hung out nonchalantly in the hallway. I'm going to tell you kind of what that tape contained. Is this some kind of a joke? She asked in a tone I'd never heard from her before. What? This is really your room? Well, yeah. Don't tell me those are your... Your pictures on the wall? No, those are pictures of Miss August, September, October, November. Shut up. Just shut up. I don't want to hear it. I have never seen such an unbelievably sexist and unsensitive, insensitive, dastardly display of debauchery. Debauchery. I can't even think straight. How could you dare hang those things on your wall like that? 
Nate was silent at first, but you could hear him shaking his head. He answered her. Tape. Well, that set her off. The one person I'd met in college who I considered totally unflappable had now suddenly become flapped, totally flapped upside the head something fierce, and she was letting loose to compensate for years of self-control. As far as we could tell, Nate just stood there and took the medicine for a while. No doubt V8 Nate was looking for an opportunity to turn her anger to his sexual advantage. He might have been considering whether she was on the rag. You just have to know Nate to understand. Meanwhile, Mary was laying it on thicker and heavier. Every fifth word was offensive. Every sixth word was disgusting. Every seventh word was sick. She managed to incorporate her fair share of perverted and degrading as well. And at one point, I wondered whether the tape's 30-minute side was going to contain her monologue, her diatribe. If she had planned to convert him to the flock with some kindness and understanding, her approach now had fully switched to fire and brimstone. After she passed the words offensive and disgusting for the umpteenth time, Nate interrupted her. Listen, listen, he said. Shut up and listen. I think you've made your opinion clear, ma'am, but you haven't even bothered to ask me for my opinion. Okay, she said, finally chilling. I'm sorry if I've crossed a line with you somehow. Frankly, I didn't think you'd be so upset. I've had dozens of women in this room this year, and you were the first to complain. How many came back? Hell, how many have I asked to come back? Babe, when I call, they come and usually come repeatedly. Anyway, you know what I find sick and offensive? I find sick and offensive your misuse of the term sick and offensive. The human body, and especially the female human body, and extra especially the stark naked female human body, is not offensive in any way. It's flat out beautiful. In fact, I came to take you here tonight on the hunch that your female human body was worth getting worked up about. Care to prove me wrong? No. I'm leaving. Fine with me. But I'd prefer if you didn't leave with such a terrible misconception about me. What do you mean? She asked. You think I'm a guy who doesn't have any real set of values. You think I wouldn't recognize something that was ugly, perverted, and degrading if it smacked me upside the head. Am I right? She was silent, but probably nodded. Before you go, then, allow me the chance to prove you wrong. Let me see. You find Miss March offensive. I don't understand that. She loves children, she considers herself to be a romantic, and she even lists the Bible among her favorite books. You're missing the boat, lady, if you find this girl offensive just because she can't keep that satin teddy over her breasts very well and she's not wearing any panties. Let me get this straight. This is sick? This is perverted? Yes. You find this offensive? Yes. You got a lot to learn, lady. That's not offensive. Nate said, apparently sweeping a hand toward his wall of shame. Now that, he said, to the sound of his closet door opening wide, that is offensive. Mary screamed like the horror actresses of old. Her shriek, plus the sound of her colliding with Nate's door, brought most of us out of our bedrooms. Even those of us wearing only underwear shamelessly ventured down the hall to investigate the scene of the crime. After bouncing off the door she tried to run through without opening, Mary fumbled at the handle, threw open the door ajar, and ran into the hall. Immediately, she was surrounded by a dozen or so men, most of which were in their underwear. Again, she screamed, screamed as if the specter of Vincent Price was clutching her by the leg and pulling her into a pit filled with unspeakable horror. We can assume that Virgin Mary hadn't seen many men in their underwear at such a proximity before. 
Pushing her way through the crowd, she ran off the floor, down the stairs, and all the way across the parking lot to her dormitory. From my window, you could still see her, a trace of her figure, running through the lobby and toward the bank of elevators. The moral to this story, and I'm sorry that my heckler isn't around to hear this, but the moral of the story is be careful not to be too easily offended. If someone wants to repulse you, it may prove as simple as opening a door. Masters of None. HJ from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. So that is the routine that I call, did you hear the one about V8 Nate? I don't think it's appropriate to call it a story, but, you know, routine will get the job done. As you might imagine, it's not the only story about this particular character that I actually knew was on when I was a freshman in college. There are others, some, you know, short and silly, like he and his roommate angrily getting into a uh, bottle fight with one another, with all the empty Jim Beam and Jack Daniels bottles that they'd consumed during the first couple of months of the year being turned into broken glass on the floor of their room, um, with neither one truly intending to do injury, but ultimately making that trip to the restroom first thing in the morning a bit of a, a bit of a tricky thing. The other one that I'll share, I'll share later because it has something to do more with my personal experiences. But yeah, V8 Nate's uh, worldview did come into play at that point in time. Hopefully it's a good April Fool's Day joke, completely out of character with everything that I've done before. And uh, if that's the case, then I, I give myself credit for succeeding. When I stop to think about you know artists that I enjoy the work of who have mastered in the art of shocking and offending, or at least who understand the line between where, uh, where you've gone too far in offending and where you've kind of you know, stayed in the right kind of sweet spot, so to speak, the alternative rock group King Missile comes immediately to mind. And I would cite the different drummer being the lead singer and principal lyricist or poet even, John S. Hall. I have since seen John S. Hall's work from a poetry perspective, available on the Indie Feed Performance Poetry Podcast, a podcast that tends to feature more modern poets in a poetry slam kind of a vein. But I do enjoy uh, what John S. Hall has to do there because I'm comfortable and familiar with his lyrical style, mainly because of my first exposure to it on an album that came out in the early 90s called The Way to Salvation. Now, I didn't pick up this King Missile album because I had any misgivings about the title, meaning that he was a Christian artist. Uh, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a confusing point for me. I knew he wasn't. But I did enjoy the way he uses some elements of you know, religious culture or uh, what I would call the suburban culture as the backdrop for a lot of the storytelling that's within his songs. You can tell it with song titles like The Story of Willie, which might be my favorite of all theirs, beginning with the line, on the morning of the day of the apocalypse, Willie got up and made himself bacon and eggs and rye toast. He didn't usually eat bacon, but since today was such a special day, he figured, why not? A story literally about the end of the world, or the end of Willie's world. Other song titles include, The Boy Who Ate Lasagna and Could Jump Over a Church, what actually appears in two parts. Other favorites of mine from that album, uh, My Heart is a Flower, 
which actually got me in trouble once in the store because we were playing the song. The album had no explicit language on it, but the song doesn't include a verse about um, hoping that somebody would come along and suck the pollen out of him because his heart is a flower. Uh, and that, that expression alone was more than the Midwestern ears were able to handle. And the other one that I enjoy so much is a song called Pickaxe, which uh, has the lyric, she split my head open with a pickaxe, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. So upbeat, alternative rock with an electronica sort of a background to it, with basically John S. Hall reading more than singing over the top of the lyrics. Songs like Sex With You just basically is a list. Sex with you and sometimes food is all I want. Sex with you and maybe a movie or a play is all I want today. You know, just keeps adding to the list as he goes, including the bridge in the middle of the song where he turns it on its head and says, you know, a shower, a shower with you and some shampoo would be oh so good. This is the mentality. Now, most people would have experienced King Missile one album later when they released uh, Happy Hour, and that included the single. I think I, I'm comfortable calling it a single, not a hit single, but a single called Detachable Penis. Again, there's not a lot of irony in these song titles. The song is exactly about that. The lead character in the song having a detachable penis, uh, having gone to a party, had too much to drink, and now doesn't have it with him anymore, and he has to track it down and find it. Detachable penis. Um, earlier in their life, the band King Missile was even more experimental, with uh, less musical elements to it, but more lyrical elements to it. And a couple of those I'd like to cite as I tell the rest of the story of my experience with the band King Missile. One of them is a song from the uh, album Mystical Shit. That album had a song called Jesus Was Way Cool. And again, I don't feel that he was being sacrilegious or blasphemous, but he also wasn't proselytizing either. Um, and in the song Jesus Was Way Cool, he plays around with the omniscience and the omnipotence of Christ and makes a whole series of comparisons that, um, you know, if Jesus were a hockey player, he'd score more goals than Wayne Gretzky. If he was a guitarist, he would be more amazing as a soloist than Jimi Hendrix. You know, he turned water into wine, but he could have turned grass into marijuana. Just all this sort of list of things, which on their face express a, a genuine uh, acknowledgement of what omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence are all about, and not denying in any meaningful way the kingship and lordship of Christ, but doing so in a manner that is unmistakably ironic. The other things, uh, there's a song on that same album, I believe, called Gary and Melissa, which talks about an unmarried couple with a very sexually adventurous lifestyle and how they ended up happier with each other in their long-term relationship without ever marrying than a lot of the married couples that they knew because the married couples never gave themselves the freedom that Gary and Melissa did. And um, it's a song that I just can't imagine ever having played in the store. We never did. Or having heard it on, even on the radio. It's just beyond, beyond the ability to comprehend that. But by far the most scandalous and um, risky song I've ever heard them release was in the very first album. At least I think it's the oldest album called They. And that album includes a song called Double Fucked by Two Black Studs. <laughs> now, this is, a, again, one of those songs where you can't play this in front of the kids. To be honest with you, you can't play it in front of your wife. Um, if I'd picked up the song when I was in college age, then it would have been great. It would have been a it would have been a heroic anthem, no doubt, for the entire dormitory floor. But in this case, um, I heard the band perform live when they were on the Happy Hour tour. And so you go to that concert, and you know you're going to hear a lot of songs from Happy Hour. And I went hoping that we would hear songs like uh, Dinosaurs and My Heart is a Flower and Pickaxe, all of which we heard. They didn't do the story of Willie, which disappointed me, but I always go to a concert with one or two songs that I hope I hear that it's probably naive to think the band's going to play, that they're really not going to play those songs. Because my love for those songs has a lot to do with how 
the songs are not really genuinely all that popular. If the same song was a top 40 single, I would probably find more flaws in it than I do. And, and so that was the case. I was very pleased that the group continued to perform in this mid-market city. And out of town, it was bigger than that, but you know, a mid-market city where I'm going to say that they only drew 55 people in an audience to hear them perform. And they didn't have a warm-up act, so they didn't have anybody there talking to them about, well, let's just not play this show. I think their attitude was, we're here, we're in town, we've got our instruments, we're set up, let's play a concert. But their performance was much more relaxed than any other band I'd ever seen before. And I think a lot of it had to do with how empty the place was. So we're all standing. You know, there's front one or two rows, front row seating for everybody, you know, uh, depending on how you just define being on the front row. Because there was no reason for anybody to sit in a chair or to go to an assigned seat. It just, there, was, there wasn't any crowd to control, right? At one point during the show, the drummer broke the drum head of his lower tom and decided that rather than playing on without using that drum, because of the you know, kind of loose nature of the band and the loose nature of the crowd on this particular night, that he would just fix it right there on the spot. So the lead singer goes up to the uh, microphone and says, we're going to take a little break now so that you know, this guy can fix his drum. Um, talk amongst yourself. Yeah, so because of the proximity of the band to the audience, we just yelled out, what are we supposed to discuss? He stopped, thought for a second, smiled and said, alternative rock music. What does it mean? If anything, there'll be a test. And uh, they took a few minutes. They fixed the drum head. They picked right back up with the song where they were. We never got that test we were, we were uh, warned about. But that was the kind of the attitude the band had. During one long instrumental jam, one of the few moments that this group actually cuts loose without the singer, John Hall decided he needed to use the restroom. And rather than going backstage, he just jumped off the stage and used the public restroom that was just right outside one of the exits we were near. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Part of that is just, again, the nature of the venue, the nature of the crowd. Part of that is also the band's relative degree of popularity, the, despite the fact that Detachable Penis was moving up the charts and that they were getting a lot of MTV airplay, they were not yet household names. And in fact, when the show was over, the, some of the band members were hanging around where the t-shirt sales were taking place. And I got an opportunity to speak to John S. Hall. It's one of those rare moments where, again, this is not a different drummer than I know personally, but it's a different drummer that I've met and spoken with, and that's kind of cool. And one of the questions that I asked him, I talked a little bit about, you know, the sales of uh, of the two albums that had come out while I was working in the record stores and his perception of what the future for them might be on MTV. But the real question I want to ask was, hey, I noticed you guys didn't play Double Fucked by Two Black Studs, and I'm kind of curious as to what took that song off your playlist. Do you still perform it in other cities? Or is it just that you're so, you know, so close to the Bible Belt here that in, in the American Midwest, you're not going to include that song in your playlist? And what he said really surprised me because he said, no, we voluntarily pulled that song from our playlist a long time ago. I said, wow, did you pull it because of the sexual content? He said, no, we pulled it because of the racism. And for the first time, it occurred to me that the song was racist. I guess part of that, I'm going to cut myself a little bit of slack, was so much strong sexual content in the song itself that it's easy to get caught up in the story and not be you know, caught up in the title and what the title you know, really meant. But yeah, the assumption of the title was that the, you know, the, the race of the individual made a difference in their sexual behavior and their sexual relationship with the woman in the song. And as a result of that, they voluntarily said, no, we're not going to sing this song anymore. Not because it's upsetting sexually. Upsetting sexually was the idea, but because the song was offensive at a racial level. Now, essentially, the plot of the song is this. 
they're in a bar and a woman is bragging that she says that she's jaded because she's seen it all and she's done it all sexually. And therefore, you know, she, you know, nothing can shock her. Nothing can offend her. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing for her to do. And uh, either John Hall or the lead character of his song looks at the woman, asks her if she's ever been double fucked by two black studs. And to pick up with the song, she doesn't answer. She just gets up to leave. So he figures that probably means she hasn't. And that's basically the gist of the song. So perhaps an example of King Missile finding the line and crossing it too far, reeling themselves back in. But if you like that kind of alternative rock, and if you like poetry slam style of performance poetry, King Missile's worth a listen. I personally prefer the, the CD, The Way to Salvation, not because it's a clean CD where some of the others carry a well-deserved parental warning sticker, because I think the quality of the songwriting is superior. Either way, when it comes to an April Fool's Day joke and the kind of comedy that crosses the line, John S. Hall is a pretty good different drummer. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the website inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. And once again, happy April Fool's Day.